Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Sarah. Dimity and I would love your help in making the Another Mother Runner podcast, the original Friday show, AMR Answers, and Many Happy Miles, the best show they can be by completing a short anonymous survey. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Filling out the survey should take about 10 minutes. Your answers will help us determine future topics, guests, and suitable sponsors. We really appreciate your time and input. To show our gratitude for completing the survey, you'll receive a 15% discount code to our Mother Runner store once you finish the survey. Thanks in advance for your thoughtful responses. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Tish Hamilton. Hello, Tish. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I am good. I'm good. I'm fresh off a run and a shower, but yesterday I went for a short run and then went swimming in the pond on October 3rd. So this is the final month of being able to swim outside here in the Pacific Northwest. And I love it. I love it. Uh, That sounds wonderful. Do you just go right from the run into the water? So I had debated keeping my sports bra on because I thought that it would you know, keep my delicate bits warmer. And then I'm like, oh, come on, the bra is just going to get wet anyway. So that's kind of ridiculous. So I did run with my swimsuit rolled down so that it was like some granny panties under my shorts. <laughs> And so I did a quick change, but then my goodness, the, the, this is so banal, but the parking lot at the pond was closed. And so I had to park about a quarter mile away, which isn't a long walk, but to do it in your swimsuit on October 3rd is a little, (laughs) a little bit. So I walked over to the pond. Um, some guys who are fishing complimented me basically. If they had known the phrase badass mother swimmer, they would have said it to me. (laughs) And so I swam and just, Ooh, it was delightful. It's so dark green. The water is and the, it was an overcast day and it was still pretty early. So what sun was hiding behind the clouds wasn't up very high. And so the water was just really kind of dark and mysterious. And so, but then that walk back to the car, that's, that made me chilly for a lot of the day, even though I took a shower when I got home. Yeah, I'm sure it chills you to the core. But so mm-hmm. is the water a warmer temperature than the air right now? You know, on Sunday, it definitely seemed, Molly and I went swimming on Sunday as well. And there was a little bit of steam rising off of the water, which told me that that it must be warmer than the air temperature. But there wasn't any steam yesterday, Tuesday, but it's still, I think it feels a little warmer than the air temperature. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. So it was awesome. Yes. So, and you have an urban adventure coming up this weekend, yes? I do have an urban adventure coming up this weekend. I'm going up to New York City to visit my daughter where she is in college, and Mm -hmm. I am super excited to see her. Now, you know, they have, uh, as as you know, right, there are parents' weekends for Mm -hmm. for, uh, um, folks to come up on, and she um, specifically said... Do not come up on Parents Weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going up on Parents Weekend, which I think is next weekend. Uh, okay. And um, and she said, just come up and and we'll do our own thing. So I'm, I'm excited to be doing that. Nice. So she's a sophomore for her freshman year, though. Did you go to Parents Weekend? I did. I did go up on Parents Weekend, and we didn't do a single thing that was, you know, the air quotes organized things. <laughs> I mean, timing-wise, it works well based on when the schools start, when Thanksgiving is. You know, it's that nice lily pad of seeing your parents and uh, as parents getting to see our children. And so, yeah, we are going, Jack and I, my husband and I are going to Seattle University to see our younger daughter on Parents Weekend, which is 
uh, the, like the 20th to the 22nd or whatever or those actual dates are of that weekend. So, And um, what about John and Montclair, your son John and Montclair? Will you go see him? They do not have a parents weekend. Ah. Mm-hmm. They had homecoming weekend last weekend right on the heels of that huge flooding that happened in New York and the surrounding environs. So I felt badly for them to, you know, to have a football game that, yeah, that type of stuff. <laughs> uh, well, so. sadly, the, the forecast for this weekend is rain all weekend too. Oh, yeah. brother. Uh, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always afraid I'm going to lose an eye in New York city in rain because everyone carries an umbrella and, you know, there's a lot of shorter people there. And so <laughs> I, I walk around and the umbrellas are basically at eye height. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, and plus it's also often windy. So and these little <laughs> tiny umbrellas, they're not that sturdy. And they're like blowing around all over the place. They're basically yeah. useless. <laughs> yes. uh, so John, the, my son at Montclair State, which is in New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan, he did not bring an umbrella back there because here in Portland, we don't use umbrellas when it rains. Oh, and but his roommate had one, and I don't know whether he borrowed that or whether he some, somehow he laid his hands on one. And he has a picture of him with a an umbrella that has turned inside out. So that was a first for him. Yeah. So wait a minute. Why why do you not use an umbrella in in Portland? Is it like never raining all that hard, or you just get used to being wet all the time? No. The, good question. Well, it's d- definitely a cultural thing. You know, when you see someone with an umbrella, you're like, mm, out of towner. Before the <laughs> climate crisis worsened, we didn't have very um, significant rain when it rained. It was very, you know, it was misting, it was sprinkling, you know, a whole bunch of words like that, that just kind of mean very light rain so that you could even be wearing a leather jacket Wow. when it was raining. You know, whereas if you wore a leather jacket in New York City, when it was raining, it would be soaked and ruined and all that stuff. And so that's not the case out here. So people also, it's um, people wear hoods, which is not a look that some people go for in other places. So, you know, just people have really good outdoor gear. And so they just rely on that. So you just flip up your hood and call it a day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know. It. I mean, we now get some heavier rain or chubby rain, as, as um, was said in one, uh, I'm forgetting which Eddie Murphy movie that was. Um, my husband and I often will say that chub. Oh, it's chubby rain. This is like the, the version of, I know it's a, a myth, but like the Eskimos having however many words for snow and Portlanders oh. have however many words for rain. Oh, most definitely that and green. So that because it is so lush out here and, and verdant. So <laughs> there you go, showing off your words. <laughs> Chubby rain and verdant grass. Yes. <laughs> it is true. Everyone who comes here, oh my gosh, it's so green here. Yes, that's because we get a fair bit of precipitation. So. <laughs> and though we do get lovely sun and cool nights, it all makes for a, a very lush growing uh, climate. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of climate change, <laughs> unfortunately, it's it's no laughing matter. What we're talking about today is the cancellation of the Twin Cities Marathon and Twin Cities 10-mile race. It was just this past weekend. And we don't too often schedule a last-minute podcast topic based on current events. But when that happened this weekend, I mean, it was a big seismic, to mix my earth metaphors, event in the running community and particularly in the mother runner community. We oftentimes joke that Minnesota is the mother load of mother runners. So I just knew we had to talk about this happening. And also the Twin Cities Marathon is one of my favorite U.S. marathons and I've run it twice. So Tish and I will be joined first by Eli Ash, the Twin Cities in Motion race director. Then we'll talk with two gals who are set to run Twin Cities in Motion races on Sunday, one who is going to run the 10 mile and the other the marathon. So, and I do want to say before our, we welcome our first guest that Tish, I suspect you know the reason that you're my first choice to be co-host today was because of our experience at the 2012 Boston Marathon. Which was also quite a hot year. Yes. And you at the time were executive editor at Runner's World and you were up from New Jersey. And here I was, I had flown all the way across the country. And unlike you, I didn't repeatedly qualify for Boston. So it was a rarity. That was my first time there. And I just remember us having brunch the day before 
And I guess by that point, we knew that they, yeah, they had said that race organizers had said, correct me if I'm wrong in this memory, that if you did not pick up your bib, you had, you, if you decided you wanted to postpone your entry for a year, you could do that, but it meant you could not have picked up your bib. And so I guess by that point, you hadn't picked up your bib and you're like, yeah, I'll have to be back here for next year for work. I'm just going to wait until next year to run it. That sounds very casual to me. I don't remember any of it like that. <laughs> I remember agonizing like crazy and I, I do not do well in heat. And, uh, you know, I was in my early 50s and suffering from hot flashes. And I was just like, oh, that's going to be a brutal day. And mm-hmm. I was also signed up to run Big Sur, which was either a week or two weeks later. Right. Um, or was so it, I, wasn't it six days later? Yeah, it might have been. It, yeah. it depends on the year, how how soon it is afterwards. So mm-hmm. um, and and, um, you know, yes, I have repeat qualified for Boston. But as you know, it's never been easy for me. I always squeaking in. Yes. And I would not ever run it without qualifying or raising money for charity. So mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't just like say, oh, I'm going to just run it next year <laughs> without <laughs> you, some thought. You did. People did have a guaranteed entry. They did. And that, yes. and that was awesome of the Boston Marathon to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I just was like, I've just flown 3000 miles. I don't have the money to come back here, yeah. the money to stay in a hotel, all that stuff. I'm like, I'm doing it. Yeah. So. It's a complicated calculus for sure. It is. It is. All right. Well, thank you, Eli, for joining us in what I can only imagine is a very hectic, busy week for you. Yeah, it is. There's a lot going on, but thanks for having us, Sarah. So, Eli, before we dive into the race cancellation scenario, set us up by telling us a little bit about yourself as a runner. Sure. Yeah. I am a lifelong runner whose passion for the sport exceeded his talent. I was a division three runner at Whitman college and knew that that was where my competitive career (laughs) would really end. And so went to grad school for sports business, which led to an internship with the Austin marathon, which was great. My goal was to work in endurance or Olympic sports that led to an opportunity at the California international marathon, where I race directed for six years before ultimately in 2020, moving here to twin cities in motion. I have run exactly one marathon myself, and there's a joke a few of us in the industry have about uh, the one marathon club, where <laughs> everyone thinks you're so all in on running, and we are, but we're so all in on putting the races on that maybe your own personal running does at times take a little bit of a backseat. Oh my goodness. All right. So can you talk us through the various flag warnings used at athletic events to indicate heat conditions and I guess weather conditions in general and how they went from bad to worse this past weekend in the lovely Twin Cities, which I should say, if folks don't know what the Twin Cities are, that is Minneapolis and St. Paul. Thank you for that, Sarah. That's something our marketing team will definitely appreciate. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, we do use, uh, which is pretty standard across major marathons, a system called the event alert system, which standard has green flag, great conditions, yellow flag, exercise caution, red flag, exercise extreme caution, and black flag, uh, which is cancellation. Here in the Twin Cities, weather being what it is, there's also a kind of lower tier, uh, which is white flag, which is cancellation not for heat, but for cold that has been customized to uh, Twin Cities in Motion's version of the event alert system. But yeah, no. So as far as conditions going from bad to worse, uh, we start really paying attention to the forecast when our official special event National Weather Service Twin Cities forecast brings uh, us into range with a week to go. So the Sunday evening before the event, a few of us started talking and then ultimately we kick off our week on 9 a.m. of Monday morning with what we call our race week interagency public safety meeting. All of our emergency management, fire EMS, police, permitting and public safety partners in a room with us, our operations staff, uh, kind of reviewing the plan for the week, making sure we're all on the same page. And that ultimately is when we confirmed that based on that forecast, we were going to be communicating to our runners that we expected to operate under red flag conditions. Uh, The forecast was pointing towards the event being able to be operated safely with additional precautions, which we started working on with those teams. But we wanted to make sure our runners were aware of that. And so throughout the week, they received a series of communications from us about the forecast with what we expected of them to be able to operate under those red flags, exercise extreme caution conditions, 
And then also what we were doing as far as additional medical preparation, addition, additional cooling preparation, additional water in key locations uh, so that they could then make a safe decision to either run or not run or run, but adjust their pace as fit and was safe for them. Those were the conditions we were operating in almost all week with a forecast that pointed us towards red flag conditions until ultimately Sunday morning. So I imagine that the week before a marathon, putting on a big marathon like you do with also a 10 miler is like you don't get much sleep anyway. And then the night before your race, um, you're looking at conditions with a whole host of people. And I imagine you're doing a lot of deliberations. And of course, you know, as someone who has been a race director for a while, you've got, I imagine you've got in your head scenarios that have gone with other large marathons that have dealt with heat conditions. I'm thinking of specifically 2007 Chicago Marathon that, that didn't really go well when it got really hot. And of course, the 2012 Boston Marathon, which both Sarah and I um, experienced uh, in hot conditions. So tell us about the deliberations that y'all made. Yeah, uh, we were meeting regularly throughout the week, both with our crisis communications team and also with follow-up meetings with our medical team internal, as well as our EMS and fire partners to make sure we marshaled appropriate resources. A huge thank you goes to our EMS and fire department partners who were ready to call on mutual aid agreements, who had already coordinated to make sure on-duty assets were aware of and going to be placed appropriately adjacent to the event and had upped their event staffing as well. Our medical team internally spent the week making sure, hey, here's standard preparedness, but here's making sure we have extra ice for on the course. Here's cooling towels uh, for our medical team to have on course in case they need to provide cooling procedures in those buckets of ice, uh, being able to cool the towels and put them on folks. Our operations team doing things like ordering misters that we were going to have in locations in the finish area, really making sure we coordinated all of the key elements and had as many plans as we could have in place. And we're also clearly communicating those plans. Uh, beyond that, on Friday of event week, after spending that week marshalling all of those resources, doing all the things we could to make sure that we felt we could operate safely under red flag conditions. We met with our medical leadership team consisting of those uh, EMS and internal medical and fire partners uh, and our operations team to kind of review those plans, review the most recent forecast, and all agree that they were adequate to operate in an acceptably safe event. And we all said, yep, the forecast is still red flag. That means we will see uh, this sort of response needed. And our response is this and then some, like the resources we have planned are ones that will, assuming this forecast holds, ultimately allow us to move forward with a safe event. So it really was a constant process throughout the week. And I will say, Tish, though, yeah, maybe there was a little less sleep than there would be in a normal event week. But there's a principle like about gases that they'll like fill the space that's available <laughs> to them. And that's kind of uh, what it's like the week of a major event is that whatever space is available, whether it's crisis comms and uh, heat preparedness or something else, something's going to fill that space and you're not going to be sleeping too much. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, but then talk us through that shift from red flag to black flag on the night before. Yeah, absolutely. All week we'd been saying we can operate safely in red flag conditions. And if the forecast hadn't changed overnight, Saturday into Sunday, uh, we would have mm. operated safely under those red flag conditions. But uh, we had a planned final check-in at 2 a.m. Uh, where our hope was if the forecast had held from the previous night, we would be able to issue the go. But unfortunately, uh, on that call with National Weather Service, we received notification that the wet bulb globe temperature high for the day, uh, which had never been higher than 78 all week, had spiked to 82 in the mm. forecast. And that was expected between just after noon and one and going to remain there through at least 3 p.m. with our course being closed at 2.30 p.m. So ultimately, uh, our runners out there with an uh, 8 a.m. start of the marathon, just at tail end of peak, four and a half hours and onwards, a lot of those runners were going to be running in conditions that uh, we do consider to be black flag conditions. We had made commitments internally to ourselves and to our runners all along that we were going to do everything possible to move forward with the event. And forecasts change a lot. They changed several times throughout the week. Yeah, they'd stayed in red, but they'd been all up and down throughout red. And we'd seen blips in all directions. So we said, hey, this is the first time we've seen this number. We had a, we hoped not to need it, but planned fallback meeting uh, scheduled for uh, 445, where our 
rules and games committee, if needed, was going to review final inclement weather. And I had a 4.30 call with National Weather Service right before that to confirm whether the forecast had changed or had not. Uh, Ultimately, it hadn't. We still had the same forecast we had at 2 a.m., which was one that we deemed unsafe. So in that rules and games committee, uh, with input from our operations team and our medical team, ultimately we made the call that we couldn't safely go forward with the event, that we, we would be putting our runners at unacceptable risk, and then quickly got out the communications to both uh, our runners and our internal folks as quickly as possible. Mm. So then talk us to us also about the difficult but necessary decision to not hold the 10 mile race, which obviously is a shorter race in the marathon and it's super popular. So even though it does start an hour earlier than the marathon. And so, you know, you wouldn't be running into those, you know, 82 degree temps at 1230, one whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've gotten that question a lot and we definitely understand it. 10 milers for us, If the 10 mile had been a standalone race without the marathon, likely is something that could possibly have gone forward under these conditions. However, it's all on a string. And for us knowing as runners ourselves, if we put out communication, hey, the 10 miles going, but the marathon is canceled, what we would have seen is likely two things. One, a lot of marathoners hopping into the 10 mile, creating circumstances unsafe on that course things like shortages of water, supplies at the finish, not being appropriately staffed to handle that. And also, again, if I'm a runner, which I am, even knowing what I know, if you tell me the race that I'm not in is going, but mine isn't, there's a part of my brain that's going, oh, come on, and wants Mm -hmm. to go out there and run my own race anyway. I know that. I acknowledge that. It's natural. So knowing what we know about runners, that those two things were likely to happen, It was something we had discussed earlier on and had kind of decided that we didn't feel we could assure that we could provide a safe event if it was 10 mile only with those extra considerations of marathoners hopping in or more marathoners running unsupported on the marathon course and possibly taxing our city services in other ways that we were going to run the event safely as in under red flag conditions or better from start to finish for both the marathon and the 10 mile or weren't able to go with either one of them. We understand the disappointment from both our marathoners and our 10 milers, but ultimately in large scale event logistics, uh, sometimes things are on a string with each other. And that's definitely the case for us with our marathon and 10 mile. The other question we've gotten a fair amount is, hey, why didn't you start the event earlier? Our 10 mile starts as early as we can really to be operating in safe, well-lit conditions and also to get our volunteers and our medical team and everything else we need out there and set up. And our marathon starts an hour after that. Even with that hour gap, we already have some overlap between our front of pack of our marathon and the back of the pack of our 10 mile, Mm -hmm. especially including actually our professional wheelchairs, who we already have what uh, at times feels like an uncomfortable amount of overlap with. So while we couldn't move the 10 mile any earlier, we also couldn't move the marathon start any closer to the 10 mile start and still provide a safe final few miles of the course. So ultimately, neither of them could be a go. So the people of the Twin Cities, again, St. Paul and Minneapolis, offer such great support at Twin Cities in Motion events. The first time I ran Twin Cities Marathon in 2012, I was just blown away by the number of folks cheering along the race course, having parties. It was so fantastic. But then there's been this blowback on social media. I'm not saying that all those people are uh, (laughs) residents of the Twin Cities. But so what's your response to the folks who express their disappointment, frustration, anger? Yeah, our response is that we're disappointed, frustrated, and angry too. Uh, We work all year to put on this event and not to cancel this event. And ultimately, we had to, from a set of options that were unacceptably bad and still really bad, choose the one that was really bad, which was to not go forward with the event. Yeah, we, again, work all year to be able to put this thing on and understand that anger and disappointment. What I will say is I'm really appreciative of a lot of the folks on social media, not affiliated with us who jump in and say, hey, we support your decision. We appreciate it. We understand you were doing what was best to keep us safe. And we do think uh, it's a vocal minority that is truly up in arms about the decision. Folks coming by the office to get their medal, uh, folks reaching out to us in some other ways. A lot of the time we really are getting some feedback that while they're disappointed, which we are too, they understand that the decision was made with safety in mind and that it ultimately was the right one. Uh, Ultimately, it's our hope to uh, be able to do right by our participants. There are a lot of things, literal physical things, uh, but also things on you know, the financial side that we still need to square away, 
But our hope is that we can really do everything we can to be as generous with our participants in as many ways as we possibly can. It just takes a little bit of time for some of those things to be sorted out. Sure. I'm glad to hear that some people have been positive and supportive of your decision, because I, I can't imagine how hard that is to do. And so I even don't like asking this question, but, you know, I some people are going to say, uh, they'll counter by saying, you know, I, I trained during the summer and through the hottest September in Twin Cities uh, that's been on record, so I can run in heat. So, like, what do you say to that argument? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's an individual argument. Um, if we had gone forward with the event and the expected 16,000 plus runners had shown up, the vast majority of them would have made it home safely. But no one is the person who plans on being in the medical tent. And the number that our math and our models showed that would have had incidents had kind of gotten to an unacceptably high level of risk. There were folks who went out and ran on their own that day. We didn't get reports of 911 calls or anything from there. Those folks ran their own pace. They made the right decisions. They made sure there was support. And that's something that someone can do on their own. But when we make decisions, we have to make them with not even just all 16,000 participants, although yes, also them, but all of our volunteers, all of our supporters, and our full city's EMS network at mind as well. And ultimately, the numbers that we were seeing pointed towards us not being able to provide a safe experience for everyone, even if, yes, those 16,000 runners, uh, most of them would not have ended up in the medical tent. Certainly an unacceptable number would have or worse. And that's why we had to make the decision we did. It's we're all in this together, not thinking about just any one person, but thinking about all of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So and then we're thinking about, you know, we look ahead and, uh, you know, with the climate crisis, right, it doesn't seem like warm early Octobers are, you know, a one and done thing. It's not that unusual. Um, it, it getting, it's getting more and more usual, right? So race date temperatures have climbed above 80 degrees four times since 2006. And so I'm sure you're thinking about like, well, what does this mean for your planning for the future, right? So what are some of the heat mitigation and safety practices that you and other race directors are thinking about for future races? Yeah, I will say that here, having gone through this past week, so grateful for the efforts of our medical team and ultimately some of the things that we were doing to gear up for a red flag event in the cooling space, in the making sure there are additional supplies and equipment out there. We always do a rigorous after action process. And I imagine that in that we'll go, hey, some of these might become something that become not just a scale up practice, but a standard practice for us to assure that we do have, again, the appropriate ice, water, cooling materials, extras and key locations like we were already planning on doing for this year's event. Of course, there's always just selecting your event route. I will say we love our event route. But as the folks are designing new events, I think you might see them thinking about their route and going, making sure there's appropriate shade, making sure even to some degree there's appropriate access for emergency vehicles if necessary, and certainly picking times of year that are appropriate. As for us for time of year, we definitely consider everything to be on the table after every year and then focus on a few key things. We are already set for the first Sunday in October, Sunday, uh, October 6th, 2024. Mark your calendars. It's going to be a great one. We're looking forward to the comeback year. But certainly prime running conditions are something that we take into account when setting our event date. And if we believe that there is a greater likelihood of prime running conditions uh, later in the month of October, I wouldn't want to take that off the table for the medium term or further downrange. Of course, there's more than that that goes into it. There's the city's larger special events community, uh, what services and facilities are available at any given week. But ultimately, we do consider after every event, everything to be on the table for us to consider in order to improve the event for years going forward. Mm. That's intriguing that uh, I also though think of the uh, twin cities race. It's depending on the leaf situation. It can be just such a beautiful, you know, kind of kaleidoscope of the oranges and reds and yellows. And um, that would be a shame and to hold it later in October because a lot of those leaves would be down and then you get a heat event and then there's not the same shade you would have had. And my goodness. So, I mean, does the pessimist and you envision a time when the vast majority of endurance events in the Northern hemisphere are held in like November through March. I mean, as Tish reminded me this week, it was way back in 1984 that the New York City Marathon was moved from mid-October to early November. Yeah, um, I think when you look at the Northern Hemisphere currently, uh, there's already a pretty robust 
season that does take place in the winter. When you look at like your Houston marathon, your Austin marathon, mm-hmm. your Atlanta marathon, a lot of those events that are taking place in the winter. Uh, I do think every event's going to assess and make sure that they're doing what's right. And again, what comes into that is certainly more than, Hey, what are the prime running conditions? But for many events included among them, uh, the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon weekend among those factors is, Hey, what can I do to assure my runners good running conditions? And I think for every event, it's certainly about what can I do to assure my runners safe running conditions. And I do think it's possible that you would see some consolidation in certain events, but there are going to be so many factors that come into play. Uh, something I always say is every events, a unique and beautiful snowflake, and they all have their own shapes and their own reason they take those shapes. And so they're all going to make the decisions that are right for themselves and their running community, taking all of those factors into account. Mm-hmm. You've just mentioned the word snowflake. So now I envision October 6th next year is going to have Well, I will say, days. yeah, one of the things we, <laughs> we, we have these discussions annually, and we had discussed uh, previously whether any of these dates in the future were something that should change. And uh, of course, being in Minnesota, a couple of years ago, we had the largest ever earliest snowfall in the history of the Twin Cities, where I believe we had over six inches on something like October 8th. So that's the thing you got to take into account as well, is those snowflakes maybe actually uh, coming down during the event. Uh, The Twin Cities is very good at moving snow, though, I will say. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, you can move snow, you cannot move heat. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eli, and for your candor today. All right. Thank you, Sarah and Tish. Really appreciate you having me on. Take Take good care. care. We'll be back after a quick break to hear from the brands that let us bring you this free content. Please support them like they support us. We'll be back shortly to talk to two gals who were supposed to race last weekend in the Twin Cities. All right, now let's talk to two women who are slated to run the Twin Cities in Motion races last Sunday. First up is Corey Ayers, a multi-time marathoner who is registered for the 10-mile race. Corey is a mom of five grown children, ages 23 to 32. She's self-employed and lives in Egan, Minnesota, which is south of St. Paul. Thanks for talking with us, Corey. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, Corey, set us up by telling us a little bit about your running background. So I started running at uh, 14 when I was in high school. I was a distance runner running the 800 and 1600 meters and sometimes did the 440 relay. So, and my dad used to help me train. So we'd go out early in the morning, two or three times a week. He'd be on his bike pacing me and I would be running with dogs generally. (laughs) And so I was able to get really in really good condition and loved having the time with my dad and the dogs as well. It is special to be able to have that time with your dad. You must treasure that now. I do. He passed away um, a few years ago, so it's really good. He started having health troubles when he was in his late 70s, and I decided in my 40s to run my first marathon because I wanted to run a marathon when I was 80 in honor of my dad. So we'll see if that happens. Nice. Mm. Nice goal. I like it. Yeah. All right, Corey. So tell us about your Sunday morning, you know, when you heard the news about the race being canceled, what went through your mind and ultimately what you decided to do that day. Okay. So I've been running with the same two ladies for about 10 years. And so we do most of our races together and we had decided to meet at 530 to drive into the race together. And we got there a little bit ahead of 530 and we just decided to kind of wait until we got the email to know whether what our day was going to be like. And so one of my friends always gets the emails before the other two of us and she got it. And we could tell by watching her face that it wasn't good news. And mm. the first words out of her mouth were, I can't believe this. And she turned her phone around so we could see the email. She said the race is canceled. And we just kind of stood there in shock. And realistically, one of the first things that what all of us said was, darn, it's 530 in the morning and there are no coffee shops open. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we were a little, we were disappointed to say the least. We didn't really know kind of what to do. And one of my friends started posting on Facebook and another woman that we knew who was also set up to do the 10 mile, we all went to Starbucks and had coffee and just sort of talked about the day and kind of what to expect. You know, we could go in and 
uh, run if we wanted to, but the race wouldn't be supported. Eventually, we found out because as 10 milers, we were expected to check any gear that we needed at the end of the race the day before. So a lot of our conversation was, what do we do? When do we pick up our gear? Mm. How do we pick that up? And as we sat there for a while, we did realize that we could pick up our gear at the Capitol where we were scheduled to finish. So we did. Uh, we drove in and it was really surreal to be at the Capitol with no music playing. It wasn't buzzing with activity. It was just kind of a somber event. We picked up our gear and we decided since we were there, we were going to do a 5K. So we started at the finish, headed onto the course you know, to about whatever halfway was. And then we turned around and ran back to the Capitol. Now, this is a unique course because when you round one of the corners, you, it starts to be it. The first five miles are downhill and the last five miles are a long, steady climb up to this to the last mile. And then it's a downhill and it's a sweet downhill. And so we ran into the Capitol finish line and it was kind of fun. There were lots of people who were at the start line who actually ran um, the course. And there were lots of people out of their houses handing out water or Gatorade to runners, letting them run under sprinklers. So even though it didn't happen, even though the race didn't happen, there was still a lot of enjoyment and, you know, people having fun on the course. So that was kind of our morning. Hmm. That's lovely. So in a Facebook post a friend sent me, you mentioned you you knew you could have completed the 10-mile race, but you appreciated race organizers making the difficult decision to cancel the race, particularly because of first-time marathoners and slower participants. So could you talk a bit about your thoughts on that topic? Yeah. So a lot of the people on Facebook were talking about they ran grandma's the 2016 race, which was really, really hot. I ran that race and mm -hmm. it was awful. It was black flag conditions, and I'm a four-and-a-half-hour marathoner, and I finished in over five hours. Now, as I said, I run with all my my friends, uh, my two friends, and they said I looked horrible. I looked spent at the end. And I have 50 years of running experience behind me, and I knew going into a race like what we had on Sunday or Grandma's 2016 you need to do a lot to prepare. You need to eat more bananas. You need to drink more Gatorade. You just really need to prep and you need to be willing to slow down. If you're a first time runner at either 10 miles or the marathon distance and you've not run in these conditions, it's not a good first time experience. And for Twin Cities uh, officials, it's never easy to call a race, but yet I know We've had runners in past years in at the Twin Cities Marathon that have collapsed on the course or at the finish line with heat-related events, and they were not the same conditions that we had on Friday, So, or I mean on Sunday. So I was really glad that they took the health and safety of the runners and put that, you know, as more important than actual running a race and putting runners into jeopardy or could be jeopardy or dangerous situations. There's always another race. You can always, you know, get another, go to another race to qualify for Boston or whatever you were planning to do. But given the race conditions that we had on Sunday, many of the people who had hoped to qualify for Boston would not have been able to. It was just too right. hot. The toll that the heat and humidity put on a person's body, it's just not worth being in that risky of a situation. So, and Corey, with your experience, you know, of course, that there is a difference between training in hot conditions and racing in Correct. hot conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about your plans to kind of do like a makeup effort. Yeah. My friends and I are planning to run probably in two weeks and we'll pick a 10 mile course that's pretty scenic and the weather conditions should be better and we'll just run and have a good time. So yeah, it'll be fun. I may actually do a 10 mile on my own this weekend because my friends are out of town. So I may do two 10 miles. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier doing grandma's and, and I think I heard you saying it was uh, under a black flag. 
Yep. And that had so I mean that that's like it had started in a yellow flag and ended up at a black flag. Did you did you finish it or did you consider dropping out? How did that go? Um I finished the race. I almost I've only had one DNF when I started a race and that was an ultra marathon and it was interesting conditions, but I did finish the race and I did realize early on that it was not going to be a good finish for me. I wasn't going to PR. I wasn't even going to be close. And so I just kind of slowed down and enjoyed the race. When I first started doing marathons, the first one I did was a grandma's in 2006. And my kids always watch me when I race. I mean, they may not be physically on the course, but they know when I start and they generally know when I finish. And so I always finish because I do it to honor my dad. And I also do it because if I quit a race, my kids will notice and they will know that if things get hard and I quit, they might not finish something that gets hard as well. So I'm a role model for my kids. And I realize that, you know, you can still learn things, even though it's not a good race or it's not the race that you planned. And so I just try to be a good role model for not only my kids, but anybody else. I used to work as a assistant coach for a beginning women's running group. And so many of those, you know, women still watch me. And yeah, I just try to do what I can to help other runners know that it's okay to not have the best race uh, on the planet. And you can still learn from it. That's right. And adjust your goals as need to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, awesome. Well, Corey, have fun on that one or two 10 mile <laughs> that, you, that you've run. And uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Sure. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is Jen Deerhog, a mom of a teenage son. Jen works as an administrative assistant at a financial advising company, and she lives in Blaine, Minnesota. A seasoned marathon runner, Jen is training for next month's New York City Marathon. Jen was aiming to run the Twin Cities Marathon on Sunday, and she didn't let the cancellation of the race get in the way of her covering 26.2 miles that day. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you. So, Jen, tell us about your running background, please. Well, I first started in 2017, so not that long. I started uh, running 5Ks trying to improve my health. I got involved with uh, Moms in the Run, a local moms organization as well. And for some reason, I, I decided to join a half marathon. And then that's how it all went <laughs> to marathons. And since 2019, which is my first marathon for grandmas, I have done over 15 marathons. Yes. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that includes the pandemic. So, yes. wow. Okay. A lot of virtuals. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's that, that will then that set you up well then for the decision that you and some members of your running club decided to do after hearing that the race was canceled due right. to the forecast of extreme heat. So, okay. Mm. So you've done a lot of virtual marathons. So, so you were undeterred. Tell us, tell us what you and your pals decided to do. Well, I already drank my carb drink in the morning and at the previous evening. And uh, my friend, uh, I, I was not aware of it. She called me around 530. She's going to be picking me up to go. And she said, did you see the email? And I said, no, I didn't see the email. What's what's up? And yeah, we uh, you know, learned that it was canceled. And we both wanted to run. We got some other friends on a, a text link and we all decided, yeah, we're just going to go to our local hangout that we usually go to um, in Minneapolis and start running. <laughs> and, and, and so on that text thread, were you all like, yep, we're doing this. We're still going the marathon distance. Or was it just like, wait and see, we'll, we'll see what people are doing once we get there. Yep, exactly. Some of them uh, were doing the 10 miles. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, we're just going to see if anybody else is running because it was on, on the marathon course. Not really sure what we had planned at that time, but trying to get as most of it done. Mm. Mm. So what was it like? Were, were there other people out there? And yes. And what was it like to run in the heat and humidity? Um, well, there was a ton of people. We were surprised how many people, how many spectators were out. 
with electrolytes, fluids, uh, food, people honking their cars. The governor was out there. I got a picture with him. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Yeah, there, it was it was busy, especially on Summit. And uh, the heat, it was uh, it was good, I would say, until uh, closer to around 11 o'clock. Then it got a little bit, a little bit warm, humid. I know after I did complete the 26.2, I went to the mile 22 of the marathon course and I was helping give out electrolytes and all of that stuff to runners that were still running. And there was a lot of runners that just looked like they were really, really hot, really struggling. So I think the later it went, the more people were struggling. Well, in light of that, did then do you think that the race organizers made the right decision? I I do, especially for, you know, people that are maybe a little bit longer for marathons, the distance. I yeah, with the heat that was coming, I I was just sweating just standing there giving um fluids out and mm-hmm. towels out and stuff like that. So, I think it was. I mean, it was it was definitely not something that we wanted or uh, we planned for, mm-hmm. but I think, yeah, definitely with the medical, you know, they might've had a lot of, lot of heat issues mm-hmm. going on there. Yeah. yeah. So we know that you are training also for the New York City Marathon, which is coming up in what, four weeks now. And so I'm curious, like, did you think ever, um, like, maybe not doing it the 26.2 on this past Sunday to save yourself for New York? I did. I know my training schedule for New York has 23. So I was aiming for 23. But yeah, I got a little bit of sidetracked. Well, I'm just going to go for the whole 26.2. So... Mm -hmm. So you have not mentioned something that makes you a warrior and that you run so strong and you have cystic fibrosis. And I hope it's okay that I bring that topic up. Yes. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about what it's like to exercise at high level with that chronic disease and, and your athletic transformation in the past decade, because it's really from what I've, the sleuthing I've done online, it's, it's pretty staggering. Right. Yes. I was not able to run even a block without having to sit down on the curb prior to getting into this medicine breakthrough that I've been taking. It was really, really hard hospitalizations all the time. And since 2019, when I started this new medication, all of a sudden, you know, I'm able to breathe more and it's definitely improved. And I I think it definitely is from the running. My doctors are amazed Mm. how much my lung capacity has improved. Actually just running, Mm. going from slow, you know, and gradually building up that, that lung capacity so I can do the home in marathon distance. Yeah. And I mean, you ran 336 on Sunday in the heat. That's, that's a mind blowing time for people who have two lungs that are not trying to, you know, sabotage their entire bodily system. So I, Mm -hmm, I -hmm. I think you are, you're being modest. I mean, I, it's, it's really, it's really amazing what you're able to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, my whole goal is for running to um, get the cystic fibrosis awareness out. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that me running, I can inspire other people, the younger generation that has cystic fibrosis, that they can do hard things. They can, they can get out there and with the medical assistance that we have, right now and our DNA, yeah, we can, we can do it. And I'm here for just showing that awareness. Mm. That, that is really awesome. And I'm curious, like, do you have any standout memories from this past Sunday? Yes. All of the spectators just handing out the fluids, ice, washcloths. That was just amazing. I was in, you know, tears seeing everybody just come out in groves, supporting every runner out there, even though, you know, it's called out, they're, they're still coming out there and showing up. That was wonderful. It just shows how wonderful this running community is. I remember that so vividly. I ran Boston 2012 when it got up into the high 80s during the race. 
and and there were no leaves on the trees. You know, it was midday, early afternoon sun. And the first person I saw with a bag of ice, you know, a bag of ice that costs a dollar. I just thought they were like mm. handing out gold bars. I mean, I just, <laughs> right. I just thought your generosity and thoughtfulness is overwhelming me. It was just- <laughs> yes, yes, it was, it, it was amazing. Even there was, there was bands too mm. playing. Wow. Yes, mm-hmm. it was wonderful. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the spirit of the Twin Cities, they do support that race so well. And, and mm-hmm. it's just joyous to see that whatever shape it takes, they're out there for you. Right. Exactly. And that really, I think, helped push every single runner to get their running miles accomplished. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Jen, we'll, we'll be thinking of you on the day of the New York City Marathon. And thanks for sharing your story about Twin Cities with us. Great. Thank you. Uh Tish, you know, I really am thinking the sadness is that this is not going to be an isolated incident. This is, I think this is the start of the first canceled marathon due to extreme heat. Well, you know, Sarah, we were talking about 2012 earlier. And as we've been going through this conversation, uh, you know, and thinking back to 2012 when you and I were both in Boston and it was really hot Mm -hmm. and I did not want to run that year. And I do not want to run another hot marathon Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just it's too hard. It's too hard. The, The bag of ice, the people with bags of ice, I remember. But also, I remember how extremely still the air was, particularly going through kind of Framingham and so where there's the sides of the course are lined with um, storefronts. And so there was just no breeze, any direction. And it was honestly like being in an oven. There was just yeah, it's mm. it's like a, it's apocalyptic. It re- oh, it, <laughs> not it, to get too it, dramatic it is, about it. Is, it. <laughs> there's something a little zombie-like about a marathon, anyway. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think probably also to people who are not runners, they think we must all look like zombies coming to get them. But but it's just yeah. But I think Minneapolis-St. Paul and its residents and its race people really showed their true colors on Sunday. So it, it's wonderful to see the power of the community. Mm -hmm, Exactly. All right. Well, we have a, if it ever gets cool enough, we have a new long sleeve tech tee in our mother runner store online. And I just debuted it at the Portland Marathon Expo last weekend where I was selling in person for the first time in a year. I'd forgotten how fun that is. And the shirt sold incredibly well for many reasons. I'm going to list off a couple of them. It's a lovely shade of lavender, which is, you know, a bright spot to pull on pre-dawn for a winter run. The tech fabric is incredibly soft and has a brush feel. It has thumb holes and it's emblazoned with our new stacked Another Mother Runner logo in a great trio of bright colors. It's a mere $45, which includes shipping. And like many of our sassy tees and tops in our Mother Runner store, we offer it in a range of sizes from extra small to 4XL. So to find this new long sleeve tech tee, as well as all our other merch, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on the store in the top navigation. Again, anothermotherrunner.com, click on store. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medora from Fire on the Bluff. Go ahead, Tish. It's fine. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your text as the question was oh, coming no, out I of went, my mouth. Oh, like, I know. Oh, and I could, I could tell so what sorry. was happening. No, no, no. I could tell what was happening. I was like, oh, I'm sitting there thinking, go, keep going, Tish. Keep going. <laughs> there it goes, Tish stumbling around again. No, 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 no. <laughs>